Wan Smoke, Broken, Chapter 8, Wan Smoke, Part 2, Crown Elixir Trial Number 106, Testing at 10% Concentration Diluted with Gin on 3 Subjects, 1 Gremlin, Age Unknown, 71.2 Pounds, Yellow with Spots, 1 Human Male, Age 22, 143 Pounds, Addict, Emaciated, Infected, 1 Human Female, Age 28, 145 Pounds, Addict, Results of trial. No effect on the gremlin whatsoever, as expected. However, both human subjects display significant responses. The male, after a week of transitioning from 50% concentration, showed decreased signs of crown infection. However, it appears that his dependency increased during that time because merely two days after the trial, his head, hands, and feet were completely transmogrified, subject terminated by death wand. As in previous trials, the female bore the most fruitful results. Crown infection went into total remission, as did other signs of addiction. Furthermore, diluting with gin instead of wine seems to produce a synergistic effect in women, while elevated mood and increased addiction presents with both solutions. The former causes a docility not present in the latter. Conclusions Walter Hyde needs to bring this to market immediately and stock it in every shop he owns. Then once that's worked out, I'm going straight to McCrum to discuss foreign distribution. If we can sell this stuff to Marigold, South, and Cynic, we might as well be the kings of Sealand. From Dr. Alan Edgar's notes, Crown Elixir Trial, number 106. The Kingmaker, almost seven stone of machine-forged steel with a bore as big as a tyrant's clenched fist. It was originally designed to be put on ships, though the need never arose to war against the foreigners. So Bradwer repurposed it as personal siege equipment, or anti-personnel, or anti-anything that can be killed by a pound of lead or stream of flames. I've been wearing it ever since we loaded into the coach, the strap heavy on my shoulder, the blue-black steel cold on my hip. But it's worth it to work the breach and imagine it in live operation. I can't wait and neither can broken. She aims her shiny new brass-capped death wand, full staff-sized and giant in her arms, at Grant, and smiles with a blue glimmer in her eyes as she pulls the trigger. The hammer chinks against the wand's naked nipple, and the constable scolds her for treating the weapon like a toy. I am not, she shoots back, long-drawn and whingy. I'm practicing for what I'm going to do to the doctor when we find him. Put a hole in his heart like he did to Roslyn. Bang! She cocks the hammer and lets it drop again. Grant shakes his head. Ashlyn, that's not what we planned. Don't call me that. My name is Broken. Negative on both accounts. Your parents named you Ashlyn, whether you like it or not. And our plan is to arrest Dr. Edgar, not to execute him. Broken pouts at the constable, but doesn't try to argue the point. Neither do I. Though the thought of letting off a few shots with our new arms is exciting, the burning pain constant across my abdomen, even after a full day's rest in the wayhouse and nearly another day on the road in the coach, acts as a reminder of what happened the last time I let arrogance go to my head. I mistook the help and wisdom of others as if it were my own, lucky then that it was only me to suffer the consequences. If I make the same mistake with Dr. Edgar and the Glassboro Patrolman, it could be my friends who get hurt. It could be broken. I pat the girl on the head and tell her, 
We'll have plenty of chances to shoot during the summer expedition, but we won't be able to go if we don't live through the winter. I point out the slash across the belly of my cloak. All right, she whinges and looks away from me, past Verva and out the rear window. Like in the boat, the mystic is seated beside me with broken wedged between us, so I can't help but notice her smiling at the edge of my vision while I'm trying my best to console the girl. Before I realize it, I'm gawking at her beaming approvingly at me until we both blush, embarrassed and turn our attention to opposite corners. Nastius's eyes roll and Grant shakes his head. We need to go over the plan, he says, one more time before we arrive in the city. We don't really. If the constable could only comprehend that a child's musings weren't serious, he'd know we are all well aware of the procedure we agreed on before departing Bradward's workshop. We are to arrive by coach in the southwest where patrolmen should be scarce and where we can stay hidden at an inn until early morning. Then at pre-dawn, we secure horses, despite the fact that neither Broken nor I know how to ride those beasts. Grant says we'll need the speed since there won't be any refuge till we're well past Marigold. I can't argue with that, though it still seems like a bad idea. Let's just hope it's easier than resurrecting dead people. Our getaway preparations complete. The next step is to acquire information. If what Broken said is true, the peddlers work semi-isolated throughout the inner city. We've agreed on a two-pronged approach. Verva will go in first and seduce the information out of one of the goons. And if that fails or starts to go wrong, Nastius will come in with that same concoction we used to break me out of the dungeon. Follow that up with interrogation and murder, execution, Grant insists on calling it, claiming these gang members are all accessories to harboring a fugitive. I'd ask Ogier what he thinks about that, but the old king is still silent, though my left arm is feeling a lot better now. The final phase is to storm the Crystal Palace itself. We're hoping with the information we get from our interrogation we can break in and out before they sound the alarm bells. The very last thing we want is a shootout. No matter how nice our new weapons are, Grant's wheel wand and Nostius's crossbow modifications won't be enough to stop dozens of trained professionals swarming at once. Worse, I don't know if I'll be able to transmute the Alkahest without Ogier's help, or if the new black flame satchels will work as a catalyst. They're essentially pure gremlin powder with proxylic spirit added to the linen pouches. Bradwer insisted they'd perform better than the unrefined mixture I'd dug up at home, but I don't know. Let's hope I don't find out any time soon. Some spirit or deity somewhere must have thought my prayer was funny, because no later did I entertain the thought than a voice calls out from ahead of the coach ordering the driver to halt. The gremlin slave obeys, and the knobby iron snow tires creak to a stop. A glance out the window shows farmhouses spread out in the distance, mills and factories along the river to the north, and if I lean back and twist my neck, I can just make out the city itself and the rows of townhouses clustered around the road ahead. Official checkpoint, the voice slurs. Everybody out. We glance at each other, not sure how to proceed. We weren't expecting to meet resistance this early. Grant whispers to Broken, I believe you reported the Southwest was neglected security. Why should there be a checkpoint? The girl shrugs and shrinks into her seat as she answers, I don't know. It was the bread wizard who said it to me. I never actually came here myself. Oi, I said get out or we'll have trouble. You got until the count of ten, starting. One, two. 
the constable sighs, looks at each of us, then calls out, Excuse me, deputy, what are we being checked for? No good, the man continues counting. Grant tries again, announcing his title and rank. Still no good, and now the count is at eight. There's a clicking of death wands, perhaps three or four, and the sound of boots on the ground positioning themselves around the coach. Nine, the voice shouts, stretching the syllable as much as his breath will allow, while his two men in mismatched rags stand visible from the side windows, leveling old model staves. All right, Grant calls out to the surrounding men, and one by one, constable first, we exit the coach. We're closer than we thought to the city proper. Ten houses deeper and the snowy dirt road turns to broken brick pavement, a town square of sorts, round and decayed, an old frozen fountain overgrown with moss at the center. Around it, a dilapidated tavern, its stable collapsed, a makeshift chapel flying a crudely sewn sun and moon banner flapping noisily in the wind and slowly tearing from its mount, a few storefronts boarded and buried in snow, and last, a gray, uneven road up the hill and into Glassboro's dinge-ridden south end. The men holding us up don't look any better, fidgeting, slipping and ambling in the snow. There's three total, no uniforms but for the decay in their marred leather boots, ragged shirts and trousers, and one full coat's worth of fabric among the threadbare woolen jacks they're wearing against the cold. Nothing on their fingers, though, pale, pink, and twitchily gripping their death wands. They make the immaculate look like gentlemen, especially this one, the talker. Well, slap my irons and call me a gremlin. We got ourselves a fortune here, boys. We'll be sipping pretty for days off of you lads. He's eyeing our weapons, half paying attention, half in a daydream. His companions distracted exactly the same. There's a tug on my sleeve and broken whispers under cover of Grant's attempted parley that these men are royals, every single one. Addicts, great. The constable has a harder time catching on. Under what provision of which law do you have the authority to seize our property? You carry no badge of office. For all I know, you're a bunch of highwaymen. We're PSOs, you dolt. Public safety officers. Ain't our wands enough for you to tell? Any man has the right to carry a weapon, the talker spits. Not in Glassboro, he don't. Counselor McCrum and Mr. Hyde made sure of that. Only PSOs and palace patrolmen is allowed to be carrying. That means your wands are being confiscated, so fork them over. Grant's gaze darkens. So it's war, then, he mutters under his breath, reaches for the grip of his weapon, but is stopped at the thunder of a warning shot by one of the talker's henchmen. Smoke flows from the muzzle and into the overcast sky. Verva moves to retrieve her pendulum from its pocket. A second warning shot blows a hole in the side of the coach in one side and out the other. Splinters scatter on the snow. Off the hill and buildings to the east rebounds the echo. Last chance, he says while his companions fumble their ramrods trying to reload. Give us your wands and we let you walk away. One versus four. The odds look pretty good if we start shooting before these idiots can finish with their wands. Broken's thinking the same. She's looking to me to see what to do, and I'm looking to Nostius and Grant who are equally hesitant to spoil the plan for a few royal goons when suddenly a burly man's voice bellows from the east. He speaks in incantations. To thine eternal matron's shadowed womb return, thou wayward son, in union of the wise patriarch and of the eternal matron, we bequeath this gift of the father, his son's inheritance. 
From darkness, light. From light, return them to darkness, thou divine sun. The talker turns and shouts some obscenity, brings his death wand to bear on the titan of a man marching onward without regard for the weapon trained on him. This is official business. Scram, or I'll shoot. Lot of good that'll do. The stranger is huge, at least six and a half feet and more than fourteen stone. It'd take a dead steady shot to kill a man that size. Impossible for a bunch of royals who can't stop shaking long enough to powder their flashpans. But that doesn't stop the talker from panicking. He fires his wand, and the sound rings out, echoes of thunder above and below as the bullet strikes a house somewhere in South End. At the same time, the stranger claps his hands, and there's a subtle cling of rings behind his voice as he bellows. Retribution! Lightning arcs through the black cloud of wand smoke like a sparking inferno as the royal seizes and falls. He's yet to hit the ground before a different kind of bolt punches through one of his fellows. It sinks slick into the man's chest with a sodden thud. Then there's a clattering of wood and metal of a magazine lever as Nastius spans his bow, a clack as the next quarrel drops into place, and a twang of the pulleys loosing their strain, imparting energy into the bolt and into the royal's brain. He collapses with a shaft jutting from his eye socket. The apothecary glances to Grant, then to me, and chuckles, Ha ha, lucky shot. The constable doesn't remark, but instead levels his wheel wand at the newcomer. State your intentions, he barks. To save a few lost souls from the corruption, answers the enormous man, unperturbed by the aggression in Grant's tone and stance. I don't think he'd react even if we shot him. His face is like a lacquered mask, white, still, and hairless. He wears no belt of medallions, though after gawking at him long enough, I recognize the cloth of gold robes, filthy and faded. This man is a champion for Marigold. So the Union Church finally sent someone after us? I scoff and draw Ogier's sword, hoping to hide my nervous sidelong glances. I don't want to take any chances. If there is a champion here, a shield maiden must be nearby as well. Broken must be assuming the same because she cocks her death wand forgets the brass cap, and dry fires at the holy warrior before Verva can move to talk the girl down. The man doesn't blink. Nay, the church hath not sent me nor any worthy soul outside her high walls since she was home in New Rhyme. I am likewise a fugitive, though it remaineth to be known, if ye are kin in arms against the secular corruption that consumed King Ogier and then his union church. Grant holsters his weapon. So you're not with the church? I am a servant of the Divine Son, and no other. And what does that mean? I'm wondering in unbearable uncertainty, squeezing my half-numb fingers trying to squash the angst. But the harder I squeeze, the more the anxiety pangs like a crushed bug's last convulsion, a writhing in my hand. I can't stop myself. Where's your shield maiden? I ask before he has the chance to give another speech, and for the first time since he appeared seemingly from nowhere, an expression emerges on his porcelain face. Sadness. No, this is deep-seated grief, yet fleeting as a will-o'-the-wisp. She hath returneth to the womb of our eternal matron, as shall we, if we allow the corruption to devoureth us. Lo, at our family's small house honoring the sun, I beseech you take refuge before the infidels profaneth the hill. Pay witness that my testimony so soon holdeth true. Be not lukewarm. Make thy decision. So much for our plan. We spend the rest of the evening hidden in Champion Lohan's basement, 
our only light a flickery broken candle lantern, our only warmth coming from each other's shivering bodies crammed around a table so shoddy I might have built it when I was still blind. These bowls of cold gruel, though, even I wouldn't serve a supper so rueful. Broken, and I decide to rely on our rations instead and give our slop away to the other Glassboro fugitives. There are twice as many of them as there are of us, and every one of them seems a recovering crown addict. Yet unlike the royals we encountered above ground, these people are genuinely grateful to have guests. We're the children of the Union, one of them explains. His son Lohan brought us into the divine light and saved us from the evil that has corrupted the city. He freed us from the tyranny of the crown, another throws in. Then a woman, beautiful, painted, and dressed in silk, speaks her peace, small and timid. He freed us from our sins. Nonsense. Only the divine son possesseth such redemptive power, Lohan declares as he traverses the ladder. He's left the trapdoor open. I take that to mean the men sent from the Crystal Palace have abandoned their investigation, at least for the night. It's unlikely they'll let three of their own get murdered without retribution, and absent someone to blame, we make an easily identifiable gang of suspects, or scapegoats. Ignoring that we are in fact guilty, I wouldn't put it above humans, no matter how advanced they seem, to jump to conclusions if it means they can punish outsiders. Though maybe I'm wrong about that. After all, as far as I can see, Lohan's people really are true to their beliefs. Given leave by their leader, they file to the surface and organize of their own accord, stoking the hearth, cleaning the gruel bowls, dumping the chamber pots, setting up shifts to keep watch from the mostly boarded windows. Not a man nor woman shirks work or complains. In fact, some are even humming happy hymns. Their souls hath sprung free from the chains of earthly masters. They claim that I have freed them, but I say nay. It was the wisdom of our patriarch that led them from the slumbering sucker of the eternal matron's breast. It is embodiment of his brilliance that leadeth them even now out of the matron's womb to be birthed in the light as children of the Union. Lohan presses his hands over his heart. A silver ring shimmers on his left forefinger, but on his right the iron band rests blacked and tarnished. They clink softly as the man brings his hands together. May our souls become whole again when these material borders perish, my Eleanor. Was she your shield maiden? asks Verva, gently, as if handling some fragile thing, like the wings of a butterfly. Lohan nods, tears appear on her cheeks, and I realize she's speaking from a place of commiseration. I understand how you must feel. I lost people too, dear friends. Some, I would say, were more like family, dead or scattered by butchery and malevolence. She sniffles, dabs her wet cheeks with her sleeve. My apologies. I discovered them only recently and have yet the chance to mourn. Say no more, for thou hast bared thyself boldly before the shadow of a stranger. That we may become brothers and sisters of the Divine Son, I shall answer. My Eleanor was the same, slain in pursuit of a wayward son, given his flesh over to the spirit of destruction. He tells us the story. Years ago, he and his maiden were called upon by the church to exterminate a goblin stolen inside one of the city orphanages. I can only imagine that bloody scene. Children ripped to pieces with razor teeth, eaten one at a time under cover of night, each little victim strangled in his sleep or else killed silently with his throat slit open. 
The neighbors were fortunate someone reported the caregiver's scream come morning, for when Lohan and Eleanor arrived at that dark and distant wing of the church, the goblin had cannibalized the whole orphanage. Gorged on human marrow and bone it had grown, hulking, tusked and hairy, an ogre forever damned to rage against its own wretchedness. Possessed by the spirit of destruction, so says the champion, they had vanquished such hobs before, and this one was no different. Its claws and tusks shattered against the pure silver of Lohan's shield. Its fur and flesh burned, and its eardrums burst, as Eleanor uttered the sacred incantation. No being so possessed by the will to destroy can withstand hearing the call of the Father. There is in it too much truth to ignore of the free will of man that immolateth a soul so self-deceived. In light, no longer can the eyes obfuscate the role of the hands in tilling fate. The moment of truth dawneth. The rare, repentant soul exerciseth the spirit of destruction, though many more go willingly into the eternal matron's embrace. That's when it happened. They were standing vigil to see which path this ogre would choose, as was their duty. New brothers of the Divine Son require immediate guidance, or else they too are at risk of being consumed no differently than those who chose despair. They were diligent in their vigil, but it was what Lohan calls blind faith. He did not think to look for a second hob, did not see what had become of the orphanage caregiver. She had transmogrified, become possessed by the spirit of deception, and turned into a hideous hag. Eyes blind and ears occluded with wax, even the call of the father could not penetrate the delusions in the head of a hag. The she-hob, unaffected, snuck on bare feet, navigating by sense of scent and feeling behind Eleanor before piercing her heart with a quietest stake made from one of her own children's bones. There was no saving his shield maiden then, not from such a wound nor from such a weapon. There was only his anger, and after all that remained was a mangled hunk of silver shield, ashes, and scorched remnants of what every human being has the potential to become. Shame swathed my soul thereafter, and I came to reflect over many days of penance. Then in a dream the wise patriarch spake to me in a parable. See now the rebellious son and the rebellious daughter. He speaketh with his father's voice and with his authority, though he possesseth them not, for he hath not yet cultivated new seeds for himself, nor fresh meat for his children. And hearest she speaking like a mother to her children, and lying with men as a wife with a husband lieth. Yet she possesseth no children, and hath no husband. Thus she uttereth dishonor unto all whom she speaketh, and birtheth disorder from those she lieth with. And see now the wise son and the faithful daughter. He speaketh only after his father, and by his wisdom and authority groweth to cultivate good fruits and sweet meats for his children. And she speaketh not but after her father and husband thereafter, and thus she speaketh honorably, and birtheth children of good nature. Over many more nights of smothering darkness I meditated on this revelation. I was consumed as by a leviathan at sea with only the light of faith to guideth me through the inner darkness of the soul of man. Black Lake, the Ouroboros, the inner eye of Amgene. My mind clicks like the lock of a death wand in sudden comprehension the same as when I'm reading Turnpin. There's an explosion of thought to the forefront of my imagination. The words tumble from my mouth. The lake is the ocean is the dark soul of man. 
and in its depths lies the eye, the light, the lapis, and the belly of the beast of bedlam and chaos. Lohan stares at me with his pale, hairless features, the subtlest expression of surprise where his eyebrows would be. Then hast thou too received the Patriarch's wisdom, hast thou understanding of its meaning? I shake my head, afraid that if I say another word the former champion might realize he's preaching to a bunch of occultists. Thank the spirits that Verva is quick on her feet. She interjects, The light is the spark of the divine sun in man, but man is born dark. He must live subjugated by his eternal matron and further laden by the laws of the wise patriarch. For only there in his darkest depths can he see the light of the spark of the divine. Only then can the son become truly like his father. This is what you discovered about yourself and the church. Silence follows. Lohan's missing eyebrows rise so high they vanish in the wrinkles on his forehead. Verva glances uncertainly at me, then at our host, then at the table. Another pause. Grant clears his throat, and the noise startles the half-asleep Nostius backward out of his seat and onto the packed dirt floor, a chain reaction. Broken bursts into laughter, and the tension dissolves as the former champion joins her bellows, Yea, yea, I see now the servants of the Patriarch hath sent you to me by divine winds and whispers. Ye speak clearly the same wisdom delivered unto me, and ye speak truly even of my kinship with the Church. When I revealed to them my revelation of the wise Patriarch's parable, they named me heathen and heretic. It was then I came to see what hideth in their souls. They are instruments of the very spirit of deception who slew my dearest Eleanor the very spirit who hath corrupted this city of Glassboro. That's why we're here. At last Grant speaks up. We're after the man responsible for the manufacture of Crown Elixir. Lohan waits patiently as the constable explains the rest in his usual detail, going so far as to describe the failure of our original plan and the necessity of a new one. I can't justify putting my militiamen at risk by trying a direct assault. We require a means to enter the city unseen, or at minimum, with only light resistance. The former champion nods, his face a mask again. Thy purpose is noble, brother of the Union. Yet a man cannot purgeth his garden of pestilence by severing the budding weeds alone. Reach deeper into the squalor and pull it out root and stem. This Dr. Edgar, he is but a willing vessel of deception. The lie itself, the good of gremlin chattel. This I have gathered from the plight of those who will hear the Patriarch's wisdom, that their hands have been made idle and their soil barren because of the corruption, this lie of good gremlin chattel. Truth, slavery is an abomination, to believe otherwise is to become a body for the spirit of deception, and to invite inevitable destruction as did King Ogier, did Old Rhyme, did New Rhyme, and now here, Grant protests. I don't have the authority to arrest the Glassboro owners or councilmen, to do so would be an act of treason and civil war. We're only after Edgar, and only for the crimes he's committed in South. Then I shall not ask such a thing from thee. The master's time of judgment will come. Yet for now, let it be that a man amongst yours joineth me and his fellow brothers and sisters as we free the chained from their toil. The master shall surely turn their eyes to us who expose their lie. If ye act as swiftly as doth his justice striketh a wayward son, this poisonous pollen flower, this Dr. Edgar, may be found and purged of the spirit, or else return to the eternal matron where he shall face judgment. 
The constable contemplates the proposition, though I know in the end he doesn't have a choice. This is the best cover he's going to get. The only question is, who is he going to send to start a slave riot with this religious zealot? I think it through myself. It's either me or Nostius. The decision is simple. I'll go, I volunteer myself, then to Grant. Just promise you'll keep the girl safe. Broken objects. But the constable agrees with my assessment. The alchemist has proven himself more than a capable warrior thus far, and handy with locks, and generally knowledgeable about whatever threats the doctor might pose. Me? I'm just an injured troglodyte with an oversized death wand that I've hardly shot, dead weight without the old king or some spirit to carry me forward. Not that Lohan knows that. He nods in approval. Then, with our heads, our hearts, and our hands, let us pray for light as we plunge into darkness, that our souls remain whole, and that our bodies become proper vessels of the sun's divine spark. We strike at dawn. The slaves and foremen are changing shifts, and we hope to catch as many as we can clustered, unaware, and still groggy from sleep. Our target is the blast furnace, an immense brick tower like five of South's jailhouse, carved into the steep hills where the river cuts through West End. I load a leaden ball into the breech of the Kingmaker, toss in a rag for wadding, close it, and jerk the bolt designed to do the work of a ramrod. Then I open the rear hatch and insert a satchel of black flame, the new stuff, Bradwar's formula. I close the hatch and take aim as best I can with the weapon hanging at my waist. It's repurposed for short range. I tried warning Lohan that I'm likely to hit more gremlins than slavers, but he told me that is acceptable so long as this temple of sin is brought to its knees. What does it matter to me, I wonder, lifting the front end of the monstrous weapon for the throat of the furnace chimney. On the back end, I rest my hand over the hatch where an alchemical circle has been engraved as a replacement for the firing lock. Same pattern as the brand on my forehead, only we added the Ouroboros around the edges. I figured combustion and chaos go hand in hand, and that I'd need as much help as I could get if I'm to ignite the entire satchel in one simultaneous transmutation. This is it. They're counting on you. I take a deep breath, inhaling through my nostrils and concentrating on the pressure building behind my sinuses and forehead. I close my eyes, look inside to the surface of the inner black lake, and see reflected on the water my target through the eye of M. Jean. A beam of light intensifies on the furnace chimney. But can I really do this myself? Compared to transmuting the alkahest, this should be effortless. I have the eye, the sword, the symbol branded on my forehead, just as I possessed them then, yet they couldn't save me from that elf, nor from the shield maiden, nor the trolls either. The light dims, and murk obscures the surface of the lake. The black waters turn tumultuous. I can no longer see my target nor even my own soul, only visions of darkness and fear, past, present, and future. I can't do it, I despair, not without help. It's always someone else who has to come and save me. Broken Grant, Nostius, even Chaka. Without the wisdom of the king, I can never do anything for myself. I'm going to botch this whole operation. I'm going to let them all down. False answers the combined voices of old King Ogier and the Lord of Fear, the latter emerging from my reflection wearing the blanched skull of the clan of the Antler, I in one hand, black flame in the other, and just as before I reach for the satchel, 
remembering the stone shining bright inside the belly of the beast. But it's not that easy this time around. As I reach, he snatches the flame away and asks me, Stop lying to yourself, or have you forgotten Bilar's monster? The ogre whom you helped Nostius slay, the mad fay you defeated, and Madoc as well. And what of the champion you struck with lightning? None of those count. I got lucky or had help, as do those who helped you. Broken requires your guidance. Ogier is dependent on your flesh and blood. Grant and the others rely on you even now, incomplete as they are, each riddled with inadequacies. Yet you do not punish them as you do yourself, as you punish me, endlessly and pointlessly. It is only me who you hate so unfairly, from whom your forgiveness has been rescinded. That's not true. It's not you I hate, it's me. And who am I, blind troglodyte? The Lord of Fear, Kanti of the Black Flame. I realize they're my own beliefs holding me back. Because I'm afraid of failure. Because of one mistake, I let myself relapse into old doubts, old ruminations. You're right, I admit, but it's just me inside, satchel charge in one hand, the eye of Amgene in the other. This is it. They're counting on me. I release my breath and with it the words which burn the murk from the surface of the inner black lake. The target is clear. I utter the incantation, Ouroboros, dissolution. All at once there's a rush. A jolt of brain lightning strikes behind the eye, and a sudden swelter emanates from the blazing inner lake. My body becomes soaked in a flash sweat, then the fires extinguish, and I'm left shivering in the frigid dawn with an alchemically induced migraine and a pit in my stomach like I haven't eaten in days. But it's worth it when I hear the satchel set ablaze and feel the fire and pressure strain the steel of the combustion chamber. It's less than a second, the hiss and low rumble. Then comes an eruption of volcanic magnitude throwing fire and smoke and leaden devastation. The explosion is deafening, as is its echo. The chimney implodes in a shower of bricks, mortar, and tendrils of smog and screams, though it's not until the ringing clears from my ears that I hear the panicked cries of gremlins and the coordinated shouts of foremen below. Watching them try desperately to organize amidst the chaos makes me think of Grant ordering his own team to move out. That first blast was their signal. They should be heading east by now, around and through Glassboro's south end, where their attack will be less obvious. Stay safe. I think of Broken and load the Kingmaker with two more satchels of Bradra's Black Flame. By the time I look up from my weapon, the Children of the Union have already engaged, some sniping from atop the steep northern hills with old model death wands, others swarming from the south to the base of the caved in blast furnace. They slay the men with bayonets and unshackle the slaves with stolen keys or hammers. All the while, Lohan directs them from the ground, seal this infernal engine, let it smother in smoke of its own hellfire. Without hesitation, the children obey. They plug the furnace's slag and pig iron tap holes with barrels of wet sand and clay. Good, my brothers, now breathe the bellows. Then he calls to the children above. Positions, the puppets of deception are nigh upon us. Kanti. He picks me out of the crowd the second I arrive. Yeah, I pant between heaving breaths. I think I might wretch if I have to fire this thing again. Lohan points to the collapsed furnace chimney, shattered bricks bleeding strings of smog and shimmering where the air is clear and distorted by the swelling heat. Thine engine of war, armed with flame, doth it belch hot enough to meld those broken stones and the maw, 
that yet yawneth hungry toward yonder hills. Melt bricks? Not with this. You'd need another furnace to get something that hot. With magic, then? For a second I feel just like one of the ambushed foremen, frozen in fear and unsure what to say that won't get me killed by all the surrounding fanatics. Eventually that second passes, and I have to face the former champion, point the kingmaker his way as subtly as I can manage while feigning ignorance. What are you talking about? Do not mistake a scholar of the patriarch for a fool, nor for the blind. Any child of the union with eyes to see will knoweth thou trafficest with spirits by the marks on thy flesh and on thy weapons. Even by thy very tongue hast thou testified to be fugitives of the church and thereby heathens and heretics. And yet thou and thy companions speak with revealed wisdom and walk the narrow path of that of the divine sun. He looks long toward the east and the glass towers shining in the sunrise, some glimmering silver-white, others refracting in streaks of rainbow. Just as the wolf weareth the skin of sheep, so too doth the sheephound beareth the likeness of his enemy. But alas, there remaineth no more time for parables. Can workest thou this miracle, brother? The spirit of deception sendeth her minions nigh. He's right. I can see them already, a contingent of horse patrolmen and wagons chasing after them, likely filled to the brim with every gangster and public safety officer they passed on their way out, racing on the highway along the north side of the river. They'll be here in minutes, better equipped than the twenty-some children we brought, and probably in greater numbers. And if they push us back and retake the furnace, I imagine Broken and the others getting caught between the Crystal Palace fence and a returning force of men they weren't expecting. Men whom my job it is to stop. One more time, Conti. They're counting on me. I drop the Kingmaker onto the ground and tell Lohan, I'm on it. The Zealot smiles and I'm off toward the hills hugging the northern side of the blast furnace. They're too steep to run so I climb them instead. It takes a while digging my fingers into the frozen soil, my hands cramping and my toes going numb. But with some help from the children's snipers, I make it to the top where the sweltering air is thick with smoke. There's more ash and soot up here than there is snow, and what snow there is has been stained black from the smog or else speckled red with bloody brick fragments. I wish that was the worst of it. It's not. Closer to the chimney and the furnace mouth, a couple of bodies lay sprawled, broken by the blast or shrapnel, it's too hard to tell. I don't even know if they're foremen or gremlins or children caught up in the explosion. Whoever they are, I'm stepping over their corpses to stand in opposition to the last heat vent left to this gargantuan oven. It's like staring down the gullet of a dragon, drawing Ogier's sword and retrieving my fourth and last satchel of Bradwar's black flame. They're counting on me, I think again, eyes closed and saving my breath for the Alkahest incantation. For them. And for myself, finishes the voice within my head, his face the bleached skull of the clan of the Antler, his authority that of old King Ogier, his power integrated into my own during the transmutation of souls, when called forth by greater purpose, just like before. I utter the incantation and conjure the black flame in its true manifestation. All before me is devoured. Even the smoke condenses into molten elements coating the throat of the blast furnace before hardening like a seal of blackened wax. A divine son truly, calls Lohan, kingmaker under his arm. He and most of the other children have ascended the mounds, 
the rest left below to work the bellows or else lead the disoriented gremlin horde southward. Now lo, for the spirit of deception hath met her husband destruction, incarnate in the machinations of subjugation below. He points to the patrolmen and officers pouring in from the road. There are more than I thought, all of them armed and firing death ones at the hill. Let them taste the fruit of their evil, shouts Lohan, and let it turneth to ashes in their mouths. The snipers fire in unison. A few of the gangsters fall, but many more rush for us on the hill, and a small detachment goes after the gremlins fleeing south. I look to Lohan who watches as the children working the bellows are slaughtered. He hands me the kingmaker and grins bigger than what seems natural. Thou hast done thy duty here, divine son Kanti. Go now and find thy companions. They too will need a light bright as thine if they are to defeat the Leviathan awaiting them. I glance down the hill and see it swarming with men. I'll never make it out on foot, not exhausted as I am, and definitely not while lugging a hundred pounds of steel. I'm about to say as much to Lohan when he claps his hands together, speaking the holy words of divine retribution. Only then does it occur to me why we plugged every last furnace orifice, why he sacrificed his own children to keep the bellows pumping fresh air into the flames, to increase the heat and pressure beyond what the weather-worn bricks were ever meant to contain. Thunder roars overhead, louder than a blast from the kingmaker's muzzle. I throw myself onto the soot-stained snow, plug my ears with my fingers, close my eyes as the blinding lightning falls. Lohan's plan, it was to make a bomb. Oh, hello there. It's broken again, but you're a little early. We're still waiting for the boom. The first blast of Conti's death wand comes roaring with the dawn. Even in the frozen mire so far south of South End, the reverberation shakes icicles from their branches. One almost hits Grant, but he's too focused to notice, constantly talking to himself, reworking his plan like a man possessed. Signal affirmative, and we're already in position. Weapons check. Affirmative. Fetters check. Partial negative, substituting rope. Team check. Four members present. Aye, he calls out and waits for us to respond likewise. Aye, whispers Verva. But Nostius and I refuse to play along with the constable's game. I draw the dragon lance head and affix its new knife grip below the barrel at the end of my death wand. It locks in place with a quick and easy click, though that means it'll come out just as easily if I cut with it. That's all right, I think and load a brass cap onto the steel nipple, then gently lower the hammer to hold it in place. Gerard never cut with it anyway. Um, team check, repeats Grant. Nostius yawns, and I respond, I'm not doing it, Grant. Team checks are dowdy. The constable sighs twin lines of steam out his nostrils. It doesn't matter how dowdy they are. Team checks are an important part of the operation. I know it seems unnecessary with a militia this small, but if we don't practice now when it's easy to keep count, how can we expect to maintain order with a force of fifty or more conscripts? He pauses. A peppering of wand fire echoes from the west. Ashlyn, are you listening? I glare at him and make a silent prayer to Ouroboros that an icicle falls right on his head. Nostius yawns again, says that we're wasting time. Doesn't anyone teach you country bumpkins to be punctual? Or did you forget what happened to Canty coming out of Marigold's dungeon? And he was lucky it was zealots after him and not a pack of unscrupulous mercs. I've seen firsthand how these lowlifes work. By shooting first, the consequences be damned. 
If we get caught bumbling about the palace, we won't be so fortunate as to be captured. I don't want to die because of fighting over some stupid protocol. Now are we going or not? Fine, Grant says, disheartened, but he can't quite give it up. He hefts his father's old death wand, refitted with a brass cap lock, under his left arm, and counts out each of us ending with me. Team check, affirmative, he pretends. Commence operation phase one. Alan Edgar Manhunt, militiaman, move out. I'd laugh at him if I weren't so miserable. We're supposed to run the whole stretch from Meyer to the city, but I'm not sure I'll be able to keep going at this pace. Between us and Glassboro, it's got to be at least a zillion miles of frozen floodplains, and every step of the way, we're loping a foot deep into refrozen snow. It's hard, slippery stuff. In my old new boots, I would be done for for sure though my new, new burgundy leathers aren't doing much better, and my knees keep catching on the skirt of my cloak. I'm going to have to rethink my clothes when we get back home, if we ever make it. The thought populates my mind with phantom clouds of thick miasma, full of murderous elves and masked patrolmen firing on us with enforcer death wands. Like the gremlin we saw blasted under Cynic, I succumb to the fire in my chest and double over, heaving steam and starting to sweat into my bandages. The snow does nothing to numb the stinging soles of my feet, nor my ankles, nor the burning in my shoulders. One arm hauling the heavy staff wand, the other holding my witch's hat from falling off. Stopped, I breathe and breathe till my throat goes raw from the cold, dry air. There's a dull stinging between my shoulders, a hand. I look up and see Verva beaming down at me. We're almost there, she lies. We're less than halfway, but her smile and soft eyes and the lull of her voice give me strength to lift my feet. Rosalind's counting on me becomes my mantra, and I say it like an incantation. We're almost there. Rosalind's counting on me. We're almost there. You can keep going. We're all heaving repetitions when we finally reach the city limits. Nastius is cursing and digging snow from inside the cuffs of his boots. Verva's looking after me, a bit too much, honestly, but it seems to make her happy, and it is nice to know someone besides Conti cares about me, even if it is kind of annoying. Meanwhile, Grant stammers for the group to halt. Phase, phase one, phase one, complete. Team intermission. It should be safe here to reconvene. About operation phase two. Reconnaissance and interrogation. I look around while he huffs and coughs, trying to catch his breath. It's mostly boarded-up apartment complexes packed tight together like a labyrinth of worn-out whitewashed walls with roofs of warped wood rot and broken brick foundations full of holes where they meet mud puddle alleys, everywhere infested with rats, refuse, and the stench of the royal squatters. I can hear them shifting amidst the scurrying vermin, stirring to life at the sound of our commotion. Nervous, I tell Grant. I don't think this place is safe but the constable doesn't listen. He's too busy discussing the plan with Nostius and Verva to notice the bodies piled behind an adjacent complex, half buried and preserved under a blanket of snow. Dead royals, I think at first, but they're too well fed for that. They remind me more of that peddler the bread wizard saved me from, fatter and cleaner and thicker with muscle. Curious, I glance over my shoulder and see that Grant is still busy reiterating his plan. He won't notice if I'm gone for a moment, so I inch closer to the corpses till I'm just in reach to brush off some snow with my bayonet. 
Uncovered, I count four of them, all covered in stab wounds and stripped of their clothes, their belongings, weapons if they had them. A spooky thought, that if any of these dead men were a crown peddler or a PSO, that didn't stop them from getting murdered by royals. So what's to stop them from murdering us? The question swallows my aches and pains like a dozen crown caps at once. But sometimes the mushrooms give me nightmares instead of visions. Eyes closed. I try to listen past the constables blabbering for the shifting within the houses that I'd heard before. Yet now all I hear are the crunch of snowy footfalls. A chill rolls over my skin, and everywhere I imagine monsters like Mrs. Biller as the sound of footsteps grows louder and louder as people pour out of their dark houses, slowly surrounding us without thought or coordination. Only a desire for crown and a will to kill, if it means they'll get it and a will to kill even if they won't. I hear a crunch in the snow, and my eyes fly open to a royal rounding the corner just a few feet in front of me. He looks half a hob, sickly yellow, thin, and covered in sores, unshaven yet patchy where fungus has sprouted on his head and in his beard, and his mismatched clothes, too nice not to have been stolen, show signs of mushrooms growing as well. It's even worse on his hands, like gloves of lichen hardened into a permanent fist around the throat of a broken bottle. Grant! I shout as the royal lurches forward, groping blindly through the air with the jagged edges of his makeshift knife. I call out for the others. Virva! Nostius! But the royal answers first, its head snapping unnaturally to the side to catch my screams inside a bouquet of cone-shaped toadstools where once an ear had been. Then its mouth slacks open, no sound but for the popping of jaw muscles as a froth of purple miasma slavers over its chin. The royal coils. There's a clicking of knees and hips and ankles folding more than they should while my own joints are frozen, all but for my shoulders just quick enough to level my death wand. I aim right for the heart, hold my breath and pull the trigger. It doesn't move. I squeeze harder and still nothing as the royal springs for me lunging like a feral cat with a broken bottle for claws. No thought of self-preservation, the half-hob runs itself through on the point of my bayonet all the way down to the muzzle and guard. Sores burst with orange, spore-contaminated blood. There's a flash of jagged glass, a slashing. It hits the brim of my hat an inch short of my face and would have landed closer but for the weight of the royal's body knocking me backward and off my feet. I lay sprawled on my back, dazed and hatless, my head aching where it struck against the frozen road. A wand blasts behind me. There's thunder from the west, and I think I hear shouts, but I'm not really sure. I'm scared that my head's broken open and bleeding all over the snow. And the royal. Is it still coming to get me? For a second, my heartbeat jumps high as the throbbing between my ears as a breath catches in my chest. Then nothing. Must not be. If it were, I'd already be a corpse. Cold, stiff, and full of holes. Though, I don't know that I'm not. Wincing, I reach to check the spot where my head struck the ground, but there's no blood or anything. My thick, knotted locks probably cushioned the impact. Take that, Verva, always telling me I'd be prettier if I brushed my hair. I imagine the look on her face when I tell her what saved me. If only the same were true for my poor hat. I find it ruined next to the dead royal laying crumpled with a smoldering mithril blade stuck through its heart. The rabbit felt brim is completely torn. I guess this makes us even, I say, looking down on the corpse. But you, 
I chide my death wand. It's come dislodged from the lance head, but otherwise appears undamaged. Why didn't you shoot when I pulled the trigger? I pick up the weapon and brush off any snow, look it over, and notice the hammer is lowered. Right where I left it, the brass cap unsparked. Oh, I let out. Feeling dumb as Chaka that time I tried to teach him to read. I bet Gerard is laughing at me from inside his satchel. Maybe I won't be telling Verva, or Conti, or anybody. Broken! I hear my name called under the boom of a wand blast, then another, then another. It's Verva rounding the corner of the complex, shouting, What happened? Are you hurt? Then back to the others. Those things are behind us as well. I put a foot on the corpse and yank out my bayonet, reattach it under the barrel of my wand. I'm all right, I say, stamping spore blood from my boots in some nearby clean snow. It only got my hat. Dr. Edgar better buy me a new one. Grant and Nostius join us, backpedaling, shooting into the alley from where they've come. The apothecary curses. Kid, why didn't you tell us about these things? Do you know how many bolts I've wasted? It's not my fault. They weren't like this the last time. Grant fires two more shots, then switches to his father's death wand. He cocks the hammer back and kneels, facing the corner of the complex, and commands, Abandon phase two. We need to retreat. A royal turns the corner. Grant shoots, and the half-hob's head explodes in a cloud of orange spores. We'll meet Kanti at the rendezvous point and come back with an army once we receive our shipment from Cynic. But what about Roslyn? Behind you, shouts the constable, turning with his wand, but all his rounds are expended. So there's nothing to stop the lichened hand that snares my shoulder. The air saturates with screams, then a twang, then a whir of a flying quarrel, a wet thud, a shudder, and the hand lets me go. I stumble forward, spin round to shoot, remember the hammer this time, but Verva is already in the act of pyromancy. She's torn open her satchel of Bradwar's black flame and throws it like a sheet of smoke. Powder coats the royal's spore-stained clothes and open sores. The rest floats in a fog of choking black granules. Not a second passes. Faster than my eyes can see, from her many pouches she retrieves a small bottle and striker, swigs then spits through a handful of sparks. The fluid ignites bright yellow till it contacts the cloud, then shadows. Translucent blue tendrils writhe through the air, expand and consume the royal and two others who happen to be rounding the corner behind it. Wow, escapes my mouth. I stand awestruck, agape, watching the half-hob smother in swaths of flame. That was the greatest display of ingenuity I've ever witnessed, and that it came from Verva subverted my expectations. I really underestimated her, thought that I was her teacher, but it's the opposite way around, like me and Canty sometimes. I wonder if he is just as impressed with her as I am. I hope so. I really like having both of them around, that's why I can't let them down. And I can't let down Roslyn. But what can I do to help? Grant orders my attention to the present. Ready, team. We'll fall back to the mire on my command. No, wait, I shout and rack my brain till an idea rears up that I'm sure Canty would disapprove of. But I'm going to do it anyway. I shove my death wand into Grant's hand and tell him, I'm going to clear a path. Just hold them till I'm done. He takes the weapon, but shows no signs of acceptance. I gave an order, Ashlyn. We have to respect the chain of command or infighting is inevitable. Consider if we were twenty in number instead of four. Coordinating an operation would be impossible if not for- Shut up, Grant! 
Nastius interjects, then to me. What are you planning, kid? I turn toward the human corpses piled in the snow and speak the incantation without warning or material components. Just like before under the miasmatic mountains, I look inside and feel for the power of the eye. Find it, the inner eye of Amgene. From it a current surges, unconstrained by the guidance of the king or the outer eye's vision. From Bedlam, I start, not sure what will happen. The spheres separate from shadow, light, from light cometh shadow. One prima materia from infinite immaterial. Come, Ouroboros, dissolve the spheres. There's a chill in the air beyond that of winter. The black flame burns out. More royals come, shambling now as if they're hesitant, like they can sense the spirits and fear their own souls might become components merged with the infinite outer darkness. My wand goes off. Nostius complains that he's out of bolts. They're closing in, just as I'm imagining the newly engorged sphere, one from many, and flooded with despair. I finish the incantation. Enantiodromia, reconstitution. The four corpses I found earlier bloat and darken like drowned men ready to burst. Then they do. It's a bloody eruption under cover of which skeletons, sinews, and skins rearrange. Inhuman things emerge from the reassembly. Legs like a spider's shod with hooves of a goat and just as many limbs like ropes, hands replaced by bone scythes, its underside opens into a low-hanging maw. Razor barbed, a beak at its center, extending and snipping like pincers at the ground. A rope arm flails, skewers a few dead royals, then pulls them under the maw to be devoured in a thousand bloody snips. Run, I whimper, squeezing my knees together so I don't wet myself. A tendril scythe flashes by and carves into a few living royals, turning the corner. A second after, only once they're being eaten do I notice the top of my hat resting on the ground. Run, I say, then again a little louder, when really I'm the only one standing still, staring at this abhorrent thing I created, wondering if it sees me with its ring of human eyes. Does it know who I am? Will it try to kill me like Mrs. Biller did her husband? I'm about to find out. The corpses have been devoured, and looking around, I'm what's left to eat. But Verva doesn't let that happen. She rushes me down an alley where Grant has taken lead, bayoneting half-hobs to clear a path, not fast enough to outpace the speed of skittering spider hooves. For every royal the constable wastes, half a dozen fall by quick, wet swipes of bone scythe so close. The next cut could be us. At any moment, an arm or leg might get sliced off. I close my eyes, duck my head, and run blind where Verva guides me. There's a scream. I think it's Nostius. We pick up speed. The remnant of my hat goes flying. But no matter what, we don't slow until the skittering of hooves and the chitinous clicking of fungal-infested meat being minced into mush and gristle fades far into the distance. Then it's over. We leave the monster a dozen streets behind and keep moving till we hit the north edge of South End. Only now do my eyes open. We're a short walk from the fountain where I last spoke to Roslyn. It's all ice now, but the paved streets here have been cleared of snow. No people, though, unlike in Cynic. I guess I wouldn't come outside either if a bunch of my neighbors had turned into Hobbs. It makes me hope that Ross ran away after all, that she's safe somewhere far from the city, but I can't bring myself to think the same for her father and mother. They were both addicts. They might have even been among the royal mushroom men we fought. But I shouldn't be thinking about all this right now. Maybe later we can stop by her house, after we capture Edgar. For now, we assess ourselves and the situation at the gate.
Mostly were unhurt, except for Nastius, who got gored in the forearm trying to retrieve one of his bolts. The cut runs deep, down to the bone, and the apothecary thinks the monster wasn't even aiming for him but for the corpse. He wafts the vapors from a bottle that reeks like the rag he had in Marigold's dungeon, packs his wound with turmeric and bandages, no hint of pain on his pockmarked face. Meanwhile, Grant and I reload our death wands and count the patrolmen present at the gate. We can see three from here huddled together and bundled against the cold. Behind them, a courtyard opens to the Crystal Palace, a small village of glass towers, any one of which could be hiding Dr. Edgar. We'll have to capture one of them, argues the constable, brass capping his old staff model and the six chambers of his wheel wand. No one disagrees, though Nastius would like to know how we do that without letting the remaining guards know that we're coming. We've got two wands, Grant starts, glancing at me. If Ashlyn and I position ourselves right, we can snipe two of them simultaneously while you chemically subdue the third man for interrogation for the target's location. Nastius shakes his head. Like hell I'm doing that. This isn't Marigold. They're going to be suspicious as soon as I start walking over. That, he holds up his wounded arm, and I'm not exactly going to be quick on the draw. They'll see me reaching into my pockets and fill me full of holes before I can say I was just trying to blow my nose. That's why the girl and I will cover you. And if you miss? Grant glances at me again. We won't. Isn't that right, Ashlyn? I agree with Nostius. This is a stupid plan. The whole city is in hiding from the royals, and we're outside playing in the streets while a slave riot is going on. They're probably scared just to be standing guard. They'll shoot him before he can even pass the fountain. The constable glowers but doesn't argue, the machinations moving inside his head. Eventually, he admits, Affirmative, I was hasty in my decision. I didn't want to risk a wand fight, but it seems we have no alternatives. We'll have to try a full frontal assault. What if I go instead? It's Verva, stepping forward and removing her belt pouches. How would that change the operation? They won't shoot a woman. She glances toward the gate. Probably, if indeed they are proud hardened men. They didn't have any problem shooting at me, I think, or did they? I try my best to remember the warning shots and the conversation with the young man. I can't. The memories are lost to the crown caps, it seems. But my worries are apparent and present and belong only to me. Grant agrees to let Verva try his first idea. She hands me a pile of pouches and satchels, everything save her clothes and atham. They're heavy, burdened by my responsibility to keep her safe. She must see it in my eyes, because next thing I know, she's kneeled down in front of me, smiling, promising that I'll do just fine. Broken master pyromancer and seer of the black flame, there is no one else I entrust my life with more, even Lord Canty. Even more than Chaka, that guy saved me from a bunch of trolls one time. Her smile brightens, and she laughs as she says, Yes, even more than the hob Chaka. She looks over the team her tone dropping as she asks us to face away for a moment. I need a moment of privacy to prepare something. It's embarrassing for people to watch. Women, scoffs Nostius, rolling his eyes, yet he turns away with the rest of us and waits for Verva to finish whatever it is she's preparing. It doesn't take long, maybe ten seconds, mostly breathing by the sound of it till the very end when there's a wet, nauseous noise, something like a snake feeding. The apothecary glances over his shoulder, Whatever he sees causes him to curse. 
By the time Grant and I turn around, however, the mystic seems entirely normal. Only her voice seems a little strained as she says, I'm ready when you are. We get into position. Grant takes the east post in an alley about a stone's throw from the gate. It's the further of the two positions and more open to return fire. Though he'll be hard to spot in his white coat and prone in the snow hedged into the alley. Nastius and I are closer, hidden around the corner of a storefront that's been boarded up, probably after a royal robbery. The apothecary is to act as backup in case I miss my shot. He managed to retrieve one quarrel on the way out of South End, though the fletching is broken, and with his arm injured, he isn't making any promises not to hit the mystic by accident. I squint and try to gauge the distance, maybe thirty feet. Not far for such large stationary targets, except they're not that stationary, nor are they large. We agreed to aim for whichever man stands closest to our respective position, but who that is changes with the second. They keep stamping their feet and pacing the width of the gate. As soon as I train my sights on one, he moves and I have to aim all over again. Start with the chest. Steady. Focus. Then move up to the head. Focus. Breathe. Slowly. Slower. Slower. I concentrate, try to take the tremor out of my arms as the patrolmen bolt to attention. It started. Verva's approach. She walks cautiously out in the open, her sleeves rolled and hands visible. Nothing on her person to suggest a threat. Nonetheless, the guards raise their death wands. One lets off a warning shot. Ice shards scatter around the base of the fountain. Palace is closed, lady, shouts a familiar young man. Stay where you are, or we'll put you down like a royal jumper. What's your business being out anyhow? Verva inches a step closer. I'm an envoy from Kindgrove across the Queen's Channel. I just arrived last night from Cynic. I was meant to negotiate a contract between our merchants and the Glassboro owners, but we were attacked this morning by a band of zealots. Lohan, that fanatic, grunts one of the older men and puts up his death wand. The others follow suit, even the young man despite that he hasn't reloaded. What's that the third time this month? asks the youngest before returning his attention to Verva. Well, we're awful sorry to hear that, lady, but our orders stand. You ain't getting in. Please, she says, and steals another step. My escort was killed in the violence, and I was attacked again on my way here. I've never witnessed such dangerous vagrants, even in the alleys of Cynic. Can't you please offer a woman protection? The older men exchange uncertain glances, then look Verva over again. One of them speaks up. Said you as an envoy, right? Up from Cynic? Bosses wouldn't be happy if something happened to her, someone from Cynic. City looks bad enough as it is. Why don't we just keep her here till the others get back, then send her up to McCrum's office with an escort? Shouldn't be too long now. The others shrug and nod. The young man calls out, You heard him, lady. We'll hold on to you for a spell. Just stay put there in front of the fountain. I need to come check you over for weapons. Oh, thank you, she gushes, her voice strained and fake. The moment is close, it's eating me away. The curiosity, how does she plan to subdue the patrolman? She refused to take Nastius's drugged cloth or anything that might be mistaken as a weapon, said she needed to lull them with a false sense of security, to make them feel powerful and virtuous. Then what, I wonder, watching the patrolman pat her down. She doesn't even have her pendulum to control him with suggestion, just the robes on her back and... Bugbear's blood! Is that a damned eyeball? 
Why do you... Is all that the young man can get out before Grant's wand blast echoes across the courtyard. Deadeye. The old patrolman on the right side of the gate falls. Now just for the other, wait, that's me. I realize a second after that I allowed myself to become distracted. And if Verva gets shot, it'll be my fault. I panic, double-check the hammers cocked, line up the sights on the old man standing and fumbling trying to line up his own wand. Hold still. I'm screaming inside, but between my breathing and being so scared the end of the barrel keeps wiggling. Even though he's standing still, I just can't hold his head above the sights. My arms are getting tired and my aim is getting worse. Nostius curses tells me to hurry up, so I drop the muzzle level with the patrolman's torso. A larger target, but what if I don't kill him in one shot? I squeeze the trigger and my eyes shut. Whether because I'm afraid or because of the recoil, I'll never know. Only that when I open them again, I find my target grounded and Virva held at wand point by the last of the patrolmen. His legs are shaking, his voice wavering as he commands her not to move. Panicked, he's forgotten that his death wand's been expended. The mystic, however, has most certainly not. She postures oddly, like an upright hunchback, rolling her abdomen till a pure silver blade emerges from its hiding place sequestered in her throat. She catches the atham midair, hands quick as sylphs, and just as fast the young man dry fires. A look of horror distorts his face at the clink of steel on spent brass and primer. He tries to backpedal, but Verva flying forward has already got a hand on his cloak and a dagger to his throat. She speaks in swift, steady syllables. You are scared, stiff, and silent. The scream catches in your throat. You feel the silver point pressed against your skin, pricking in and spilling blood. You are scared. You will speak only when asked of, and when you answer you will swear on your soul to tell us everything you know about Dr. Edgar, or else, she references the amulet dangling from her neck, I'll slit your throat and add another eye to my collection. You don't want that. You would rather talk. We gather around and listen as he confesses what little he knows. Verva has him repeated a couple times. Edgar's lab is under lock and key inside the Gaston Company Tower. Which floor, he doesn't know. But he's sure there's armed security throughout the building. And inside the lab, Gaston's lent the doctor a pair of his personal bodyguards. How is it that we can gain entrance without alerting anyone? Asks Grant. The patrolman shakes his head. Ain't nobody can get inside the palace without being seen. Then where is the security the weakest? What kind of weapons are they armed with? Enforcers? Not wheel ones, surely. I don't know any of that. I just work the gate and the fence to feed my family. His eyes start to water, lucid and desperate. Please, he says, breaking from the trance. I don't know nothing else. I just work here. I... A twang through the eye silences his shouting. Grant glares, furious at Nostius. We weren't finished with our interrogation. No time, grunts the apothecary, pulling the bolt from the dead man's eye socket and reloading it into his crossbow magazine. He said the men would be coming back. We need to act now before we're surrounded. And how do you expect for us to conduct a successful invasion of the tower? We don't even know which one to search. Why don't you try looking up? The constable scowls and refuses, but above it's obvious. Atop each of the main towers are names framed in steel. Hyde, Morgan, Glasser, and Gaston. That only gives us a fraction of the necessary information to conduct phase three. Then maybe we need to change our strategy, idiot. 
idiot. My father educated me himself and now I'm a lettered official. You have no justification for such a disparagement. Stop it! Virva tries to scold them. We don't have the luxury for you to act like a pair of petulant boys. Though her words are sharp, her tone has softened since when she dominated the patrolman. She's shaken from his sudden murder, like when the gremlin got shot in the cynic undercity. She worries about me seeing stuff like that, but it seems to me like it hurts her worst of all. Needless to say, the apothecary doesn't listen, just points to the tower with his good arm and announces, New plan! I'm taking charge, and I say we're not setting foot inside that death trap. Instead, they're going to come to us. A chunk from the fountain behind us explodes. It's the man I shot, standing upright and leaned against the entrance, clutching his belly and a smoking wand. He turns and runs, and Grant bolts after him like a dog on the hunt. But the constable's legs swing sluggishly after so much marching, running, and loping in the snow. And it seems the wounded man had too much a head start. He's almost at the doors to the Gaston Glass Tower when Grant stops short just inside the gate, levels his wheel wand, and fires three rounds. All misses. Glass panes shatter. Jagged fragments coat the ground below, or else hang like fang stalactites whirring with the wind rushing and filling the first floor with cold. Perfect, shouts Nostius to the constable, sardonic and struggling to shoulder the young man's corpse. Now if you're done ringing the alarm bell, Grab that body by the gate and drag it to the entrance. He turns to us. I could use some help here. Verva doesn't move or say anything, so I do what I can to help haul the young man's corpse to the base of the building and ask, what are you going to do with it? What are we going to do with it, you mean? I got an idea from that transmutation you performed earlier. Fucking impressive. He huffs a few breaths. And you're going to help me out again, kid. Hold on. He yells at Grant who has yet to move the dead patrolman laid out by the gate. It takes a few exchanges before the constable submits, and even then, he finishes reloading his spent rounds before doing what the alchemist tells him. Arrogant ingrate. I swear he's worse than Domnall at a third of the man's age. Someone else better run for his office next election. Now where was I? You said I was going to help with the plan. We drop the body onto the fragments of glass scattered in front of the Gaston building. That's right, Nostia says. We're going to smoke them out like the Marigold Constabulary used to do with the Gin Runners. Except we're going to do it better. Because you're going to help me convert these corpses into miasma. Uh, I don't know how to do that. That's your plan? Gasps Grant, dropping off the second body with Verva's help. Foolishness. Even if you can do what you're saying, you'd need a mountain's worth of the fog to fill this whole building. I peer inside, past the broken glass. He's right. The first floor is an enormous open foyer, two stories tall and with few furnishings aside from double rows of steel columns, a few fancy benches, a pair of indoor outhouses, and an ornate abandoned reception desk like they had in the wayhouse, but bigger and better, with ascending staircases wrapping either side. There's just too much space and not enough time. A cascade of footfalls echoes over the steps and the pristine tile flooring. Nostia says he'll explain later. Right now we need to move these bodies inside. Shit! He ducks just as a whirring cuts past us. Then the thunder of the shot let off by a man descending the stairs. And more are coming. Cover us! The apothecary curses and volunteers me to help him drag the bodies behind the closest steel column 
while Grant and Verva bluff back the guards with well-paced shots and miniature satchel charges. All the while under fire, Nostius laughs and licks his lips. Behind the column, he asks, You ready for this, kid? No, I don't know what I'm doing. Just perform that same transmutation again, but this time don't finish it. Leave the spheres open, and I'll do the rest. I look at the bodies and do my best not to wince at their condition or at the sound of returning wand fire. With every shot, the enemy blasts grow closer and bolder, as the constable's cover fire becomes less and less frequent. And to make matters worse, it seems that Verva is out of charges. She's clutching her athame and repeating some kind of prayer. I pray, too, that she has one last trick up her sleeve. But then I return to the bodies and realize I know better. I've got to be brave. They're counting on me. Looking inside again, I speak the incantation, summon the Ouroboros to blur the barriers between humanity and the outer abyss. Nastius mimics my inflection and tempo, yet follows with his own words that I'm pretty sure he just made up. Thou spirit Amgine mercy, blind me from the horrors of thy world of obscurities, the enigma of the prima materia becoming rotundum, thine all-seeing eye, the devouring black flames, Shroud in darkness those terrors discovered in the pages recovered of the magnum opus. I beseech thee, mercy, great spirit Amgine, Ouroboros, dissolution, he finishes, though nothing but his silence says the spell is complete. So we wait and watch the corpses, while a volley of leaden slugs thrums like hummingbird wings on the clay tile floor around the sides of the steel columns. White dust kicks into the air. One of the bodies is hit where its foot protrudes. The toe of its boot disappears in a cloud of purple fog. The reaction starts. Footfalls pound the ground as the guards steal positions behind columns of their own. In the moment of ceasefire, Nostius grabs the young corpse by the shirt and throws it through the dust and wan smoke. Then he follows suit with the other. They aren't flung far, just outside of cover. But as it turns out, that's all the alchemist's plan needs. With each toss, the storming patrolmen reopen fire, and the impact of their bullets catalyzes the reaction, so that by the end of their second volley, the entire first floor is flooded with miasma. I can already feel the sting tingle under my bandages, smell the stench of flesh dissolving, hear the choked screams of the suffocating guardsmen. We retreat back into the Crystal Palace courtyard, the plan being to wait as each man stumbles out. Or... Nastius finally explains to Grant and to the rest of us. If they feel like being stubborn bastards, we just wait until the miasma works its way up. Little secret I learned studying Hobbes for the church. If a person dies breathing this stuff, his body will break down and make more of it. Just look. He points to the second-story windows already darkening with caustic smoke. Nobody has managed yet to escape the miasma, and as the building fills... It seems unlikely that anyone will. I don't like it, Grant complains. Our goal was to capture Edgar alive and try him in South. Yeah, and how well was your plan working? The constable continues, ignoring Nostius. Furthermore, we're too out in the open here. We don't have time to wait for the whole tower to fill and clear out. No, you don't, booms a burly voice from behind the miasmatic fog wreathing the Gaston Tower, and he's not alone. A dozen more men round the tower corners, each and every one carrying enforcers. They spread themselves six to a side, crooked firing lines, their two shot rods cocked and ready. 
His goons in place, the boss reveals himself. Two bosses, actually. One tall, fat, gray, and smirking. The other short, skinny, dark, and dour. Both are dressed in silk suits and heeled boots. Both wear their hair slicked back. A shame, ain't it? The fat man asks of the state of the Gaston building. You just can't find competent employees no more. Gotta come out and do it yourself. The scowling man squints. A truism in housing, but still. That this ragtag bunch of bumpkins did so much damage. It's going to cost me a fortune cleaning this up. As if to mock the man, a window shatters on the top floor of the tower. Glass fragments plummet right into the wreath of miasma, followed by a rope ladder and a few desperate climbers. Foremost is Edgar. Even from half a hundred feet away, I recognize his sickly, sloped shoulders and his pale, hairless face. I don't know the second man, though the fat boss calls him Carl. You still alive, you son of a bitch? I thought for sure these rebels done you in. Neither climber responds, each imperiled by the swaying of the ladder and the weakness of his arms. If only my wand was loaded, the doctor would be a sitting duck, then a dead one, then I'd feed his body to the monster I resurrected, and no one would have to become a half-hob mushroom man again. I imagine it, the abomination crawling from the south end alleys toward the crystal palace's untended gate, its spider legs quick as galloping horse hooves, its tendrils scythes bloody, its belly full from devouring royals, belching miasma from its shearing beak. Lost in the daydream, I vaguely catch Grant speaking to the bosses. We're not rebels, he explains Glassboro's infraction by harboring a fugitive and being members of a cartel, complicit with the crimes of their own officers. By the old king's law, I command you command your men to stand down. The scowler seems to find that amusing. He squeaks like a mouse. Or what, Constable South? The king's soldiers are going to come down on our heads? It always makes me laugh listening to bumpkins talk about rights and protections, as if the decrees of a dead man were some kind of magic spell. It's adorable how your kind believes anything, so long as it's written down on parchment. Grant's tone darkens. So I was right in my suspicions. No township but South still follows the old law. You're criminals, the lot of you. You ought to be stripped of your titles, tried and imprisoned or executed as traitors. Boy says the fat man, you're in no position to be making threats. He unholsters his own death wand, a single-shot cynic civil service model, and levels its long barrel at the constable's head. If we wasn't waiting for Gaston to get his ass down here, we'd have wasted you already. Speaking of, he takes stock of our weapons. How did a bunch of townies like yourselves get a hold of cynic's finest? Our man said it was harder than pulling teeth negotiating with that damned gremlin. We gave him a show of power, I answer, feeling not quite myself, like I'm possessed by the desire to see this man shredded into scraps of meat and bloody gristle. Soon Gaston and Edgar and the bodyguards following will have no choice but to drop down from the end of their rope a story below onto dangerous ground studded with glass caltrops and caustic purple smoke. I stare into the fat man's gray-bearded face, see his name written adrift in front of his forehead like a crown cap hallucination. Morgan, Morgan's son, I say, then read the scowling man's as well. And you're Walter Hyde. Then I list off the names of each of the guards and watch their grips loosen on their wands. They're unnerved, but I want them terrified, so I pitch my voice low in my throat and utter a curse. Hearken, 
I am the seer of the Lord of the Black Flame. I am an eye of Amgen and a Lord of Fear. I have seen the names scribed upon your souls, and I have witnessed your fates. Listen, can you hear it? The clamor of your companions come to drag you to the grave. Morgan says nothing at first, nor does Mr. Hyde try a snide remark. Not until the void of their silence fills with the faint echo of hooves pounding the brick roads of Glassboro does the fat man scoff. What you are is a bunch of loonies. Forget waiting for Gaston. We ain't getting any information from them anyhow. Fill him with lead and he begins the order for his men to fire. But before he can finish, one of the guards catches something out of the corner of his eye. The man turns and screams, horrified, and expends both shots of his enforcer. Then, like a miasmatic reaction, his friends do the same, for they see the monster at the gate, malignant limbs skittering for them like a scorpion stinging with tendril scythes. The bosses abandon their men and bolt for the closest building. Just the same, Verva grabs my hand and tries to lead me away, but I manage to jerk free and chase Grant and Nostius already racing to where our target has dropped into the cloud. Exactly where is hard to tell. There's too much screaming and snipping of bones. I can just make out someone crying aloud about his foot getting sliced on fragments of jagged glass. But who? It doesn't matter to me which man is stumbling on a bleeding foot and which is about to emerge from the wreath of miasma. All I care about is taking revenge for Rosalind and her family. I rush in between the constable and apothecary, both too focused to notice the bayonet till it punches through the fog and into the shadow of the first man to escape. An old man, skinny and gray. He runs himself through the chest and dies wheezing blood and miasma trying to catch his breath. I extract the bayonet as he falls, get ready for the next one. Then a hand shoves me back. What in hell are you doing? Nostius yells as three more figures emerge from the mist. No time for answers, there's a doctor to kill. I shoulder my death wand, cock the hammer, pull, hear the dull clink of a spent brass cap and the silence of a barrel baron but for fouling. I curse myself. Now I'm too far back to stab the hobbling doctor as he limps toward the edge of the miasma with the assistance of a couple of guards. Maybe I can make it, I think of charging in again, but Verva grabs me, this time in a hug from behind. She pins my arms to my sides and calls me back from my murderous trance. A fire fades from my eyes that I didn't know was there. I shiver, cold and hungry, as the four tortured spirits of the resurrected dead flee my body. Fear replaces anger, though that too is replaced by bedazzlement watching Grant slip invisible into the miasma, circle Edgar and his escorts, steal an enforcer from its holster, and execute both guards before they clear the mist. Robbed of his support, the doctor steps heavily onto his injured foot and tumbles free of the miasma, screaming, the only one. None of the dozen men being devoured by the abomination are making any noise. The constable bursts out of the cloud, coughing and shouting, Quick, pick him up! Initiate phase four! Transport Edgar to the rendezvous! Ah! Grant screams as a bone scythe sinks deep into his shoulder. It would have cut him in half if not for his coat and the steel of his father's old death one thrown up to block at the very last moment. And now even that's gone flung afar by the monstrous claw, more tendrils flailing, slicing off one of the doctor's legs at the knee, and it's not even the same side as the foot bleeding through the sole of his boot. There's so much blood, so much breath white and harrowing as a banshee's shrill in the winter wind. We're going to be eaten, 
Our flesh will be sheared and our souls reduced to miasma. I close my eyes and imagine Conti's voice. Ouroboros! Dissolution! A sudden heat washes over my face. It's not my imagination. I open my eyes and see the abomination inundated by a torrent of blue translucent flames vomited from the mouth of the Kingmaker. It only takes a few seconds. After that, nothing is left of the monster but ash and a purple stain. Conti! The troglodyte stands hunched under the weight of his weapon, paler than normal and sodden with sweat. What did you do? I start to explain, but then Nostius calls us over to help with Grant's wound and to tourniquet the doctor's leg. It's a messy afternoon, but it flashes by in an instant. Under cover of chaos, we escape south back into the mire, set up camp, then a fire once we're sure no one's looking for us. The smell of the smoke reminds me of home, as does the warmth of the flames and the dark of the night sky shrouded with cloud cover. Conti and I sit close to the fire. Verva helps Nostia stabilize the doctor, packing his wounds with turmeric and applying anesthetic for the shock. Grant sits across from us, his shoulder wrapped in bandages, his father's wand across his lap. The stock suffered just as badly as its master. There are scorch marks all over, and a notch cleaved out of the wood. He peers at it for a while, then casts his gaze over top of the flames. Thank you, he says, for coming back for us when we weren't at the rendezvous point. That wasn't part of our operations protocol, but it was a good decision, and I appreciate you taking initiative to... Grant, Canty cuts him off, about to tell him to shut up, I bet. The constable doesn't catch on. Yes, he asks, and with a long, tired sigh, Conti answers, You're welcome, and thank you. For what? For keeping Broken safe. 